What a heart-searching song. Thank you so much, Christy. One of the greatest joys of my life at the stage that I'm in is to be with our graduates. And uh, I thank God for what uh, God has uh, had Billy doing for these nine years. And uh, I think the best is yet to come. Let me, before I get into my message, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter, or Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19. On the table, as you go out on the left, there are three of the books I've written. Here's my autobiography. The last 15 minutes of my message this morning will be about part of my life story. You can read the whole thing in my autobiography. Uh, 62 years in evangelism, 85 years on planet Earth. And uh, you know, this is very significant at this time. A book on prophecy, last things. What's gonna happen in Israel? Uh, I go into that. What about the Antichrist? Is he living today? When will he be revealed to the world? Will there be any saved in the tribulation period? 11 chapters dealing with prophetic themes. And then here's a book that all you young people ought to read, The Four Crises of Youth. Four questions every young person has to answer which will determine the rest of his life. Now, all those three books would be $35 but if you get them all, we knock $5 off the total price and we'll give you part of my life story that was dramatized on the radio program Unshackled. So go by the table. Also, there's a flash drive with 33 of the most requested messages that I preach and uh, that's available for $20. All right, Luke chapter 19, let's stand please for the preaching of the reading of God's word. I'm preaching this morning about a short man, a man by the name of Zacchaeus. He's always been close to my heart and to my size. I tell people that only one of the graduates of ambassador that I know of has named their child after me. The rains in Kenya, Africa, named their child Zacchaeus. So that's the closest. Now you probably wonder why your pastor's so much taller than I am. I'm gonna tell you, when I was a little boy, I guess I should say a littler boy, I was such a good boy that my mother always patted me on the head all the time. Never did have a chance to grow, but Brother Billy, he was such a bad boy, he always got it on the other end. Now, if he were at the pulpit, he'd say, the reason I'm short is because the Bible says the wicked shall be cut off, but that's not the reason I'm short. All right, Luke chapter 19, beginning, please, with verse 1. It says, And Jesus entered in Pashu Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. 
And he sought to see Jesus who he was and could not for the press because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. For today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Thank you very much. You may be seated. I want you to take a trip with me this morning in your mind to the little town of Jericho some 2,000 years ago and see if we can picture in our minds the scene as it might have been when Jesus came to town. (coughs) Now the Bible does not give us the exact setting, but this is the way I see it in my mind. Perhaps they had put up posters months before the coming of Jesus Christ to Jericho, maybe like an evangelistic campaign. And uh, everybody had heard about Jesus. They had heard that he had opened blind eyes. He had unstopped deaf ears. He stopped funeral processions. And so I believe that people came from far and near to see the great miracle worker, Jesus Christ. John 12 and verse 19, the Pharisees said the world has gone after him. So I can see in my mind as he came to town, a sobbing mother as she breaks her way through the crowd. And she says, Lord Jesus, will you go to the graveyard and raise my son from the dead? And then I can see a blind, blind man feel his way through the crowd. And he says, Lord Jesus, will you open my blind eyes? And then a man hobbled to Jesus on a set of crutches. And he says, Lord Jesus, will you heal my broken limbs? And I believe that everyone that day was anxious to see Jesus do a miracle. But you know, I don't believe that Jesus heard the noise and the din of the crowd. But rather, I believe his eyes were fastened upon one man, a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, folks, you know the reason I really like this story. Not simply because Zacchaeus was short. I'm glad God included that. But the reason I like this story is it tells me that Jesus is interested in the individual. You see, religion majors on the masses, but not Christianity. It majors on the individual. And if you had been the only person born on planet Earth, Jesus would have left the royalties of heaven, walked to sin-cursed Earth, and gone to an old rugged cross for you. He's a God of the individual. 
Now, let me remind you of something. Publicans were hated people, but Zacchaeus was not simply a publican. He was the chief among the publicans. He was the secretary of the treasurer of the infernal revenue. And so I believe that he was the most hated man in town. And as Jesus starts to mosey over the sycamore tree, <clears throat> I believe the Pharisees begin to buzz. And somebody says, oh boy, Jesus is going to punch Zacchaeus in the nose. Somebody else might have said, give it to him. He's a dirty, low-down skunk. Somebody else might have said, we'll hold him while you hit him. And I believe that everyone was anxious to see Jesus molest Zacchaeus. But you know, I don't believe that Jesus had any such thing in mind. Here was a man for whom he was going to die. And in Luke chapter 19, we have a beautiful love story told. Now, here's what I'd like for us to do in our imagination. I'd like for you to go over that sycamore tree climb up that sycamore tree, shimmy out on the end of the limb, and make a seat right beside Zacchaeus in your mind. Now, I know there's going to be hazardous when some of you get out there. Some of you ought to be on a diet. But anyway, I'm preaching this morning on the subject, reading Zacchaeus' mind. And I believe that from verse 5, we have four distinct thoughts that Zacchaeus must have had. All right, notice please verse five. It says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. What do you think his first thought was? I think it was, he sees me. My, what a thought. If you realize that God sees everything you do, It'll revolutionize your life. The spiritual used to be sung. He sees all you do. He knows all you say. My Lord's writing all the time. He sees the secret things. Hey, why are crimes committed at night? Why does a man wait until night to rob a filling station or assault a woman? He wants to do it when nobody is watching him. Years ago, I was in Youngstown, Ohio, and a lady came to me, and she said, Brother Comfort, I was just in the department store this week, and I saw a little boy, must have been six or seven years old. He went to the counter, looked east and west to see if anyone was watching, and when he thought no one was watching, <clears throat> he grabbed a handful of merchandise, shoved it in his coat, and he made a beeline. Now, why did he steal those things? Because he thought nobody was watching him. Job 31 and verse 4, that not he see my ways and count all my steps. Job 34 verse 21, for his eyes are upon the ways of the wicked, and he seeth all he does. The Bible says in Proverbs 15 and verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. 
Jeremiah 23, 29, can any hide in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord. Do not I fill the heavens and the earth, saith the Lord. Hebrews 4, 13, neither is there any creature that is not made manifest in his sight. For all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Before I started Ambassador Baptist College, I would preach many years to 100,000 teenagers, maybe more. And the more that I preach to the average Christian teenager, the more I realized the average Christian teenager is living in gross deceit about which his parents have no knowledge. I'll guarantee you there may be young people in this service this morning. If your parents knew what you were involved in away from home, it would break their hearts. I was preaching in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of my preacher friends came to me and he said, Brother Comfort, I just preached in a Christian school across town. A lady whose boy was in the Christian school came to the pastor. She said, Pastor, something's wrong with my boy. She said, I don't know what it is, but something is wrong with my boy. Do you have any insight? He said, no, ma'am, I don't. But she said, let me give you a suggestion. Why don't you go up to your boy's bedroom, look under his mattress, and tell me what you find? The next day, she came to the pastor with a page full of the titles of dirty, filthy, rotten, pornographic magazines. Tears were coming down her face. She said, preacher, I had no idea. She said, every perversion imaginable is in the magazines my son has been reading. She said, why, he even has books on homosexuality and how to do it. Now, I may say that he may have hidden that from mama. He didn't hide it from God. I was preaching in Kansas City. Last night of the meeting, Brother Herbster, the pastor, came to me and he said, Brother Comfort, there's a young lady in here tonight whose mother came to me before the service and asked prayer for her. She said, the mother woke up at 2.30 on Wednesday morning. Never happened awakened out of a dead sleep. She went downstairs to her daughter's bedroom, opened the door, 2.30 in the morning. The window was open. Her boyfriend had crawled through the window, and at 2.30 in the morning, they were engaged in immorality. You know what God says about that? Luke 12, 2 and 3, one day the secret sins will be made public. All right, notice please Luke chapter 19 and verse 5 for the second thought he must have had. It said when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. He sees me and said unto him, Zacchaeus. What do you think his second thought was? I think it was this. He knows me. Hey, God knows you so well that the very hairs on your head are numbered. 
Now I look at Brother Childs and some of the rest of you and I realize God didn't have a hard time numbering the hairs on some of your heads. Some of your heads are like heaven. There's no parting up there. But anyway, he knows me. You know, if I did not believe in the deity of Christ for any other reason, I would do so on this basis. When he was on earth in a body, he was still all-knowing. We call that omniscient. My favorite passage of scripture, Psalm 139, Brother John, uh, uh, he talked about that in Sunday school. It says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down. Here art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me, since knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto to it. Whither shall I go from my spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, sure, the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as a day, and the darkness and the light are both alike unto thee. He's all-knowing. When he was on earth in a body, he was still omniscient. He did not sacrifice his omniscience to be in a human body. For instance, in John chapter 2, you have the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, he performed the first miracle in his ministry, that turning the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee. By the way, don't ever, don't ever say he turned the water into alcoholic beverage. Don't ever say that. My friend, if he did, the scripture is broken. What do I mean? He said in Proverbs 20 and verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Proverbs 23, 31 and 32, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it moveth itself aright, when it giveth its color in the cup, at last it bindeth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Hosea 4, 11, whoredom wine and new wine, take away the heart. Habakkuk 2.15 Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink that puttest thy bottle to him. Do you know the curse of God is not only on the person who drinks the stuff. The curse of God is on that one who serves the stuff. The curse of God is on every man who owns a grocery store and sells the stuff. Now let's be logical. Do you think God would make those scathing denunciations about alcoholic beverage and have his holy son 
turn the water into alcoholic beverage. Not on your life. Now, listen carefully. Here's a rule of interpretation. You have one Greek word for the word wine. The context will always tell you what it means. When it's used in a good context, it means simply the fruit of the vine. When it is used in a bad context, it means fermented or alcoholic beverage. So you know what Jesus did that day? He turned the water into the best grape juice of the day. And then he goes to Jerusalem, it's Passover time. By the way, that's another proof it could not have been fermented wine. Why? Because at Passover time, the Jews had to get anything out of their house that was leavened. And fermented wine is leaven. So he does many miracles in Jerusalem. And the Bible says in John 2, 23, and many of them believed on Jesus when they saw the miracles which he did. But verse 24 and 25 says, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and he needed not that any should testify of man because he knew what was in man. Now there's a play on the word commit and believe. It's the same Greek word. And here's what it means. When they saw the miracles which Jesus did, many believed on him. But Jesus didn't believe on them. Why? Because he knew the crowd was fickle. He knew that one week he would go into Jerusalem on the white donkey and they would say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And the very next week, that same crowd would say, Crucify him. We'll not have this man to reign over us. He sees me. He knows me. Now go back please to verse 5 for the third thought he must have had. It says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. He sees me. And said unto him, Zacchaeus, he knows me. Make haste and come down. What thing his third thought was? I think it was this. He wants me. Oh, that thrills my heart. I don't care what your sin has been. He wants you this morning for salvation. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Isaiah 1 and verse 18. And come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Revelation 22, 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come and praise God. Whosoever will. Let him come unto me and drink. So, you know, the gospel I preach can go downtown in Atlanta. I can find a drug addict. 
I can find a prostitute, I can find a homosexual, and I can say Jesus had you in mind when he died on Calvary's cross. Now you listen to me. We would not have a man on our faculty for five minutes who believed that Jesus died for only the elect. He would not be on our faculty for five minutes. Why? The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4, who would all have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Hebrews 2 and verse 9, Jesus tasted death for every man. I don't care what your sin has been. He wants you for salvation. Now, I've always been a bargain hunter. And I, I've told our preacher boys, don't buy anything retail. You can always get it wholesale. And you can get a bargain. Everything I buy on a bargain. I got these shoes on a bargain. I got this sport coat on a bargain. When I got my wife, man, did I ever get a bargain. Now, she got the short end of it, but I got the bargain. You know, the greatest bargain I ever had was when I was 15 years old, uh, a long time ago, 60-some years ago. I had a preacher tell me if I'd come to Christ, he would remove my sins as far as the east is from the west. And every day, east is getting farther away from the west. Every day, my sins are getting farther away from the eye of Jesus. Greatest bargain I ever had was that night when I got saved as a 15-year-old boy. He wants you to first salvation. You say, I've been a pornographer, he wants you. You say, I've been a, a blasphemer, he wants you. I've had an abortion, he wants you. Though your sins be as scarlet, he wants to make them as white as snow. He wants you for salvation. Now keep your finger here. Turn to Matthew 4, please, verses 18 through 20. Not only does he want you for salvation, he wants you for service. Notice, please, Matthew 4, 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. All right, look this way. I want you to know these boys weren't fishing to pass time a day away. This wasn't their vacation. This was their occupation. But when they fell in love with Jesus, they forgot about their occupation and they became fishers of men. Now here's the connotation. If you're following Jesus, are you listening? You're going to be involved in soul winning. If you're not involved in soul winning, you're not following Jesus. But there is a key that's leaving your nets. Are you willing to leave your nets? Brother Billy, there's never been a time in my 62 years in evangelism 
when my heart has been more burdened than it is right now? Where are the labors? Everywhere I go, it's the same scenario. The harvest is plenteous, the labors are few. And I believe the change came in the mid-80s. In the 60s, 70s, and halfway through the 80s, we had an average of 30 people that made professions in our meetings. We had many meetings where over 100 professions were made. But we got to the middle 80s, and no longer were we interested in seeing people saved like we were before. No longer were we interested in seeing our kids go into God's service. We wanted them to enjoy the American dream. I would preach in those early days to 150 kids in a Christian school. And before the week was over, 35 or 40 of them would surrender for full-time Christian service. Not that way today. Why? Had a young lady come to Ambassador Baptist College in the early uh, uh, 90s. She said, Brother Comfort, I'm from Greenville. And I didn't come to Ambassador to get a degree or to have a career. She said, I came to Ambassador to serve God. And so Amy Caldwell married one of our graduates, John Bixby. They went up to Colorado, had a wonderful ministry. About 15 years ago, at the age of 38, Amy Caldwell died of cancer. Let me say she's walking the street of gold today, saying, thank God I didn't waste my life on making money. Are you willing to leave your nets? I came back from Kenya, Africa, our first mission field trip in 1976. And uh, my heart was so burdened to get laborers to go to Kenya. I preached in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Dr. Ralph Stewart, a PhD in science, was working in a chemical laboratory, already in the 1970s making a six-figure salary. God reached down in that meeting and he said, Dr. Stewart, I don't want you wasting your life in a chemical laboratory. I want you in my service. You know what he did? He went to Maranatha Baptist Bible College teaching biology making $15,000 a year. Left a six-figure salary for making $15,000 a year. Last I heard Dr. Stewart's pastoring a church in Southern Illinois that he started. He left his nets. I remember preaching in 1978 in Marshalltown, Iowa. God looked down in that meeting and he saw Bob Matney, superintendent of the public school system, a high-paying, prestigious job. And God reached down and said, I don't want you wasting your life in a public school. I want you in my service. You know what he did? He left Marshalltown, Iowa, went to Newington, Connecticut, headmaster for a Christian school, making half the salary he was making in Marshalltown, Iowa. Brother Childs, I preached in that Christian school. In one chapel, 47 young people came down the aisle and surrendered for full-time Christian service. 
Bob Matney got up with tears in his eyes. He said, young people, eight years ago in a Ron Comfort meeting, I did the same thing you've done today. You know why I did it? If I spent my life in the public school, I could never see 47 young people surrender for full-time Christian service. Won't you be willing to leave your nets? I preached right after I graduated from college. In 1970, uh, uh, 1961, in a country church in West Virginia, little did I know that the girl that played the piano in that meeting would get saved and she would turn out to be my wife. Had to marry her to do follow-up work. And by the way, we have had 60 years of a wonderful follow-up course. But not only did she get saved, her cousins, Eddie and Edna Bartlett, got saved in that meeting. Eddie Bartlett is now in heaven. He was a challenge to me after he got saved. He was soul conscious. He came to me one night after hearing me preach, and he, he spoke with a thick, stammering tongue. He was dropped when he was a baby, and it affected his speech. Now, I'm not saying he belonged in an institution, but he just was not quite average mentally. He came to me one night, and he said, Brother Ron. I said, what is it, Eddie? He said, Last week I went out and I found me an old drunk and I led him to deed the Christ. He said, Brother Ron, since I've been saved, I've led 27 people to deed the Christ. Tears welled up in my eyes. I said, God have mercy on my cold heart. I want to say every Christian in this auditorium could win 27 people to Christ if you would leave your nets. All right, in closing. Go back in closing, please, to Luke 19 and verse 5 for its fourth thought. It says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. He sees me. And said unto him, Zacchaeus, he knows me. Make haste and come down. He wants me. For today, I must abide at thy house. What do you think his last thought was? I think it was this. He loves me. He loves me. I don't know about you, but that means a whole lot to me this morning. You know, for 15 years of my life, I never knew that anybody loved Ron Comfort. I was born in a Roman Catholic home, lived in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, many times I would walk the sidewalks of Brooklyn with shoes that had no soles in them, simply a piece of leather stretched over the top of my feet. Many times walking the hot sidewalks, my feet were almost burned to a crisp. At the age of four, picking up cigarette butts off the street and smoking them. At the age of six, running around with a gang, you say, wait a minute, that's preposterous. A six-year-old running around with a gang. Hey, we lived in an area, the Bedford-Stuyvesant area. Either you were in a gang or you were the object of a gang. My brother, who was four years older than I, and I felt, it was better to be in the gang than to be the object of the gang. 
All of us had a pair of brass knuckles just waiting for a boy or a girl to be walking into the store by themselves so we could beat them to a bloody pulp with these brass knuckles. I can remember seeing my mother take a broom handle and beat my sister across the bare back with a broom handle until the blood appeared on her spine. My sister Eleanor was five years older than I. She died about 15 years ago of cancer. But before she died, she said, Ronnie, up and down my spine are scars from where I was beaten as 11 and a 12-year-old girl. Many mornings I saw Eleanor run out the door, putting on her slip, putting on her dress to escape the beating of the broom handle. My dad was in the military station in South Carolina. Every week he would send home $20 as an allotment for mother to buy groceries for four children. Instead of taking this $20 and buying groceries, my mother would spend days on end in the saloons and taverns. Many were the days we never saw our mother. Many were the days my brother Billy would go to the fruit stand and steal fruit off of the fruit stand so four little children could have something to eat. So many times I heard my mother say she hated us. She wanted to gas us to death and get us out of her life because we hindered the way she wanted to live. When I was seven years old, I came home from the first grade one afternoon trying to get into our apartment. There was an article of furniture pushed against the door, obviously to keep anybody from entering. So with my little body, I pushed and I pushed and I pushed, and finally I pried the door open just enough to squeeze my body through. You know what I saw? I saw my mother and the landlord having immorality on the living room couch. And this was the way my mother paid her rent every month by having immorality with the landlord. Many nights, my mother would go down on the streets of Brooklyn, taking men off the street that we had never seen in our lives and have immorality right in front of four little children. Later on, as I was seven years old, my mother and father received a divorce. My mother realized she could not live like she wanted to live and care for four children. So this is what she did. She took three of us, put us on a bus like a package, put a tag around my brother's neck, and the tag read this. These children are the property of William Comfort in Elmer, New York. See that he gets these children. At the time, I had a sister, Connie, who was three years of age, and mother felt she was too young to travel, so she kept her back with her. And eventually, my mother committed herself to a mental institution because of alcohol. Hey, don't talk to me about should a Christian socially drink. I know what it did to my family. I know what it did to my mother. My mother spent 35 to 40 years in mental institutions all over New York and Pennsylvania. She finally died in 1991 in the Elmira Psychiatric Center. 
I know what it does. And uh, my sister, when mother committed herself to the mental institution, my sister was reared by my aunt and uncle, Italian Catholic. You know, I had a sister, Connie, that I had seen two times in 38 years. If Connie came in the door while I was preaching in those days, I would not have known her. But out of years of praying, I was in 1981 in Brooklyn for a meeting. God reached down and he reconciled my sister and me together. What a reunion. Connie made a profession of faith at that time. But that day when we got on the bus, I remember as though it were yesterday what my brother and sister looked like. They were nothing but a stack of skin and bones. My brother had on a pair of trousers that were tied around him with a rope. My sister had on a dress that was filled with holes. When we got to Elmire, New York, we got off the bus and we were looking around the depot for our dad couldn't find him. Police saw our plight. And he came over to my brother and said, young man, what are you kids doing? And he said, well, our mother sent us from Brooklyn to Elmira, and we thought our dad would be here to meet us. So he took us around the bus depot, still no sign of dad. So he said, I'm going to take you down to the police station, and I'm going to feed you a meal. Those policemen treated us so kindly that night. We had a meal like we had not had in such a long time. And uh, finally, he said, I'm going to take you to the children's shelter. And you'll be there for 24 hours. And we guarantee you within those 24 hours, we'll locate your father. He'll come down and claim you and take you home. So the next day, Dad came down the children's shelter, took us home on the way home. I never will forget what he said. He said, kids, do you remember the woman I brought to Elmira or to Brooklyn? And I introduced her to you as your Aunt Roxy from the South. He said, no, she wasn't your Aunt Roxy from the South. She was my girlfriend. And now she's my wife and she's going to be your mother the rest of your lives. Let me say the next eight years of my life were filled with nothing but fear. Oh, how I hated to see those weekends come. I knew my dad would have his drunken buddies in. We'd see immorality and hear cursing and see fighting all night long, many Saturday nights. I never slept a wink all night long. After we were in Elmira a while, Dad came to his new wife, and he said, Roxy, New York State has not been good for the Comfort family. He said, I think we ought to turn that page in our life and move down to your roots in Asheville, North Carolina. Of course, my stepmother was thrilled to hear that. So we got on the bus in Elmira, got off the bus at Asheville, and with three children and a wife, my dad had one quarter in his pocket. One quarter. He said, Roxy, what are we going to do? We don't have a place to live. We don't have a job. And my stepmother said, Bill, I believe that Aunt Myrtle, who owns a boarding house on Patton Avenue, will keep us until 
uh, we get established. So we went down to Aunt Myrtle's boarding house and right away there was a head-on collision. My dad was a thoroughbred Yankee. Aunt Myrtle was a thoroughbred Southerner. And there was a civil war going on in that boarding house. One night, my stepmom and dad got drunk, got in a fight with each other. Aunt Myrtle called the police and they took him to jail. And I never will forget what happened after that. The lady who lived next door, Mrs. Tiller, he, she had a son who was a Baptist preacher known all over North Carolina. And so she said she would keep us until mom and dad were released from jail. I passed by this elderly gray-haired lady's bedroom. I saw her on her knees. I watched the tears come down her face. And I heard her pray, oh God, save Bill and Roxy Comfort behind bars tonight. Oh God, save Billy and Elner and Ronnie Comfort. And that was the first person I'd ever met in my life that cared anything about me. I woke up one morning when I was 13 years of age, getting ready to close now. My brother was in the military station in Panama City, Florida. One Saturday, he and his buddy were on their way downtown to get drunk. And there was an outdoor service going on in this field. And my brother said to the, his buddy, he said, let's sit down and listen to what that preacher has to say. And the preacher preached a simple salvation message. Now let me say that already at this time, my brother joined the military at 17 to get out of the house. My sister was married at 16 to get out of the house. And so Billy had already been influenced by his father. His father had taken him to houses of prostitution. And Billy lived at that age of a teenager a, a very pernicious life. And so as he listened, the preacher said, you can come down and we can show you how have your sins forgiven and how you can know you're on your way to heaven. So I'm going to close in prayer, and when I do, if you'd like to talk to us, come down. After he closed in prayer, Billy said to his buddy, he said, I'm going to go down and talk to that preacher. He came down and he said, preacher, you said I could know my sins are forgiven. He said, I've got a whole lot of them. He said, you said I could know I was on my way to heaven. I'd like to know that. And he said, young man, let's get down on our knees and I'll help you with a prayer. And you can ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. I want to say my brother got up a new creature in Jesus Christ. He didn't go downtown and get drunk. He went back to the barracks, wrote his little brother, wrote his mom and dad and said, Mom and dad, Ronnie, I've been born again. You need what I have. And Billy was involved in soul winning totally. When I was 13, I woke up and I heard my stepmother tell my dad this. Bill, I wish we could get Ronnie out of our house. I don't love him. You know, folks, that broke my heart. Nothing had ever happened in my life 
that broke my heart as that did that day. The woman that I call my mother, even though she was my stepmother, I heard her say she wanted to get rid of me. And I said, oh God, I don't want to see a daybreak. I don't want to see a sunrise. I don't want to see anybody. Nobody loves me. But Billy came home from the military and he witnessed to his brother nine out of ten days. And Billy said, Ronnie, you think nobody loves you, but I've got good news for you. Jesus Christ loves you. And he wants to do for you what he did for me. You can get saved. And I got saved. You know, I don't think there was a person in town that Zacchaeus could have pointed to and said, there goes a man that loves me. There goes somebody who loves me. But now he met Jesus. And I can see his body tremble all over with emotion. And somehow I can hear him sing, I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. And that day, Zacchaeus was saved. And you can be saved today. Let's bow our heads in prayer.